Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 27, February 18th. We've got a lot to cover today. Uh, specifically, we're going to cover things like the next uh, gen Tesla vehicle. We'll touch on the uh, uh, s some changes happening at some schools that's a little, that are a little concerning. We'll also talk about the Fed's uh, potential pivot and how that might relate to the jobs market. We'll look at some themes for investing, and we'll also talk about the Fed potentially forcing a recession. This Saturday, uh, that means today will be the first day we have a uh, group Elite Hustlers course member live stream. It's the first time in probably over three years that we're actually having a Saturday live stream. And the goal is for every Saturday, we'll have a, um, uh, an Elite Hustlers live stream. That's in addition to the course member live streams that are Monday through Friday. We'll do that uh, on Saturdays and we'll just talk about business and growth, increasing income, increasing that top line so you have more to invest during the week. So that starts soon. This is, uh, you know, obviously a pretty a turbulent time at the moment because you've got a lot of uncertainty sitting around the Fed. What's going on with real estate? Yesterday ended quite interesting. I, I think a lot of folks expected the market to end uh, a lot more down over the last couple of days. But uh, surprisingly, bond yields held through the madness of PPI. Bond yields were sitting around 3.8% uh, as PPI came out. We saw 10-year Treasury bond yields rise all the way to about 3.9, and there was a moment we thought, uh-oh, here we go, going right back into the fours. That was the fear that we'd run right back into the fours. Well, we pretty much ended the week where we were right before PPI on Valentine's Day, sitting at right at 3.81%. You can actually see that graphically here. Uh, personally, for the 10-year yield, I like to just jump on over to cnbc.com, grab that 10-year yield there. But you can see after PPI, uh, we, we had some, actually, basically after both retail sales and PPI this week, we had a substantial data set <laughs> or, or substantial jumps on both of the uh, data set releases but uh, relaxed right back down to the levels where we were before. I'm, I'm surprised by that, mostly because I, I was almost certain that uh, this, this PPI print would be enough to push us over uh, the 4% range. And uh, it makes me wonder what the bond market is seeing. If the bond market does think we're that much closer to a recession that the Federal Reserve is either uh, bluffing or, or somehow unserious in its intent to continue to raise rates uh, to high levels, or that the market just doesn't care. That, and that could be another factor. Is that what, if, what if the market says, hey, you know what? Okay, bring it on. Five, five and a quarter percent, big deal. What else you got? Six percent, don't care, big deal. It's entirely possible. That's entirely possible that we're insulated from the larger impacts of higher rates, uh, potentially because businesses and consumers have substantially more savings than they had pre-pandemic. Remember that somebody pre-pandemic had somewhere between maybe two and a half to five thousand dollars on their account, and that same average account balance today, uh, from two and a half to five thousand dollars, has risen to twelve point eight thousand dollars, and it's only fallen four point four percent over the last year, suggesting. Maybe we really are insulated uh, from, from some of these higher rates, which would increase the argument that the Fed actually has to do much more uh, than, than even 5%. So uh, we'll see. I, I find it very, very interesting to see how it seems like the bond market is uh, a little bit kind of giving a little middle finger to the Fed. Like, yeah, we don't really believe this is tight enough yet. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. We'll see how those uh, uh, those things obviously evolve. You know, what I think will be interesting is I think this year will be uh, where last year was was heavily 
painful. I think this year will be a year of uh, playing the, the patient watcher game where we're just observing. We're like bird watchers. You know, especially if you're invested, you're kind of just like, all right, I kind of see what's going on. Just sort of watching from the sidelines. Whereas last year, it, just, it was just pure pain because it was just straight down. Uh, if, you were, if you were in the market entirely the uh, last year, then, then absolutely. The best, best thing for 2022 was short. I don't know if that's going to be the best strategy for 2023. So far, trend's been up. See if it continues. So, uh, all right, uh, what else do we have here? Let's see here. <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, uh, okay, yeah, so Johnny Garcia is asking about course members and, and being a member here on uh, YouTube. So those are completely different things, right? If you want to be a member on YouTube when the member chat is open, that's, I think it's like $4.99 or whatever a month. That's YouTube. That's totally separate. Uh, I have no control over, over the name of that. Otherwise, I would call it a different name rather than member, but uh, that's what they call it, a channel member. Uh, that's not to be confused with uh, being a course member. Those are different things. Course members, you get lifetime access uh, to, to the content and the live streams once you're in this. But here's a channel member. It's, it's a recurring uh, fee. But usually on Saturdays, Sundays, I like to open it up. Uh, so we have a we have a subscriber chat, <laughs> free chat. So uh, let's see here. Somebody wrote uh, buy Lucid. <laughs> uh, someone else writes oh, bye bye bye. Someone else writes buy Tesla. Yeah. So we um, I my goal is to live stream daily. Uh, just so you know. So these these reports, the expectation is every day. Uh, but the goal is really to start around 4.30. The last three days that I've started flying have started closer to 5, unfortunately. Uh, and that's the schedule has been a little bit more to adjust to. Uh, but I should be able to move back to 4.30. But uh, with flying, I've also been getting in later at night. And so uh, we've been covering a lot. For example, just two days ago, the great fortune of meeting with um, Brett Witten from ARK Invest. Boy, I'm going to post that video today. So that's going to be one that uh, you won't see in this live stream. So stay tuned for that. I'll probably post it uh, later this morning. But I'd be uh, honored for you to watch that and, and let me know what you think about Brett's perspectives. But very, very incredible uh, insights and, and perspectives. So very excited about that. Uh, all right. So uh, now we have, uh, let's get into some of the uh, some of the structured content. Or I say structured content. Uh, okay. So let's talk about uh, what's going on here with honors classes. I can't believe it, but honors classes might be a thing of the past. You might remember going to high school, and you might remember there are regular classes, there are honors classes, and then there are advanced placement classes, AP classes. Honors classes were more challenging. AP classes were even more challenging and potentially gave you college credit if you got a four or five generally on the advanced placement test. However, according to the Wall Street Journal, cities in places like none other than California once again are deciding, you know what, it's time to increase equity. And by increasing equity, we're going to punish people who want to challenge themselves. Yes, that's literally something that's happening now in California. Take a look at this. Culver City, California. A group of parents stepped up to the lectern Tuesday night at a school board meeting in this middle-class Los Angeles area city to push back against a racial equity initi initiative. The high school, they argued, should reinstate honors English classes, which were eliminated because they did not enroll enough black and Latino students. 
The district earlier this year replaced the honors classes at Culver City High School with uniform courses officials say will ensure all students of all races receive equal rigorous education. The article goes on to say uh, that, that, well, uh, they, they talk about the parents uh, uh, fighting this, suggesting, look, we really feel equity means offering opportunities to people of diverse backgrounds, not taking away opportunities for others. I think there's a phrase here that is really applicable when we think about this, and it's uh, equity should be equal uh, opportunity. Everybody gets an equal opportunity, but not an equal result. Right? So if you have potentially different students uh, advancing at different levels, they shouldn't be punished, so to speak, and, and not be able to take an honors class uh, because somebody else hasn't been able to catch up as much. Now, the folks in California who are removing honors classes suggest that one of the reasons the honors classes were removed was because only 13% of those in the 12th grade advanced placement classes were Latino, whereas Latinos represented 37% of the student body. Asians made up 34% of the AP class compared to just 10% of the students. Black students represented about 14% of AP English versus 15% of the student body. A little bit more in line there. And they go into this idea that uh, individuals from a younger age may feel less motivated if, uh, if everyone else is taking honors classes and they're just taking normal classes. And the honors classes let people maybe average a higher GPA for, uh, for, for getting into college or whatever. So the idea Culver High School has implemented is, you know what, let's just get rid of the opportunity for you to take honors classes and let's let everyone take what's known as a college prep class. Everyone will take college prep. Now that might seem like it's better than just a regular English class. Well, this is where I'd like to add my own two cents. This is straight up bullshit. California is so stupid and their school system is failing so much, now they're actually demoting people who are trying to challenge themselves in schools. This is shocking. I actually had the honor of going to a California high school for 12th grade. When I was a student in Florida, I took honors classes and AP classes. When I came out to California, I actually purposefully only took college prep classes. Guess why? I wanted to do nothing. And I aced those classes doing nothing. I came here and from, went from actually learning a lot in honors and AP classes to purposefully taking college prep in California and learning nothing. There was essentially no homework, no challenge, no education. It was stupid. I learned nearly nothing. It wasn't until I went to college that I actually started learning again. So I kind of felt like my senior day was a complete waste. In fact, college prep classes were known as being so easy that two things personally happened to me because I've got a lot of personal experience related to this because again, I, I, I went to a California high school. Two things happened to me. Number one, because the classes were so easy, I only had to go for a half of a day. So I didn't even get the full high school experience in uh, high school here in California because the courses were so easy. On top of that, in my very first day taking a college prep class in college prep economics, the uh, teacher in that 12th grade class came up to me and said, hey, you know a lot about economics. Do you want to come in my AP class? 
And at that point, I had already convinced myself that for my senior year, uh, because I moved out here to live uh, with my girlfriend, I'm like, nope, I want to do nothing. So I, t- <laughs> I told the teacher, I go, no thanks. <laughs> but it was it was really cool because you, know, you go into an, uh, a college prep class and within the first day, he's like, uh, do you want to go to uh, AP? <laughs> uh, which, which, you know, was really cool. But it, it went to show that even the teachers are like, like, if, if you actually have an interest in the subject, you don't belong in college prep because college prep is so easy. So now what you actually have is California and other states like Rhode Island suggesting, you know what, if we can't have everyone have an honors class, let's just dumb it down. Let's just remove the honors classes so that way everybody can be in the basic class together. I personally think Everyone should have the choice, the right to choose. If I want the right to choose an easier class, I have that. If I have the right to choose a harder class, I should have that opportunity. Now, regarding equity, I actually ran for governor and I realized that unfortunately in poorer areas, you do something known as you concentrate poverty. So what that means is individuals who are living in poverty end up often becoming poorer. That's because when you live in poverty, you have a a real struggle to get by and survive. So you end up moving to cheaper and cheaper locations. Well, the more you move to cheaper areas, the worse social services are for those areas because more people are moving to them. And I mean, social services being like police, Medicare, uh, medical, fire, all of that, all, all of these services are worse. Schools generally go down as well. So when you concentrate poverty, you create problems, but you also tend to reduce opportunity for those folks. And I realized that when I ran for governor, when I ran for governor, I realized you need to help education in the poorer areas to actually be able to help minimize poverty in the future. So the state should be making a very strong effort to provide more services in poorer areas. In fact, I had a concept known as future schools, where when I ran for governor in California and I came in second place out of the, uh, out of the recall candidates, uh, almost a million votes in, realized that what we needed to do was actually educate students more in poorer areas who, yes, are in California more often black or Latino. And what you ended up needing to do was provide a new potential school system where where you could teach completely from the bottom up and solve the education system solely in high school. So in other words, we would not rely on the education someone received in elementary school or middle school because it was probably bad. And that education younger individuals in poorer areas received often uh, in the poorer areas, you had substantially higher black and Latino populations. The education those folks received from elementary school to middle school was so subpar that they they had no chance to get by in high school. So California's solution to this is, okay, well, if we can't have everyone be in honors classes, let's not fix why they can't get into an honors class. Let's just remove the honors classes. That's completely moronic. It's kind of like how California tried solving fire hydrant theft. So illegal marijuana farms in the desert of California were hooking up illegally to fire hydrants to water their illegal marijuana plants, their their farms, right? Their illegal marijuana farms. And rather than prevent the crime, California decided, let's just remove the fire hydrants. California is so backwards. You literally cannot have a more stupid state. Oh, people are stealing water from the fire hydrants? 
Let's get rid of the fire hydrants. Oh, people can't make it into honors classes because their elementary and middle school education sucked? Wow, let's just remove honors classes and punish people in California. This is the most stupid thing I've ever seen. California is so backwards and their rationalization for removing honors classes in uh, Culver City is, well, the teachers were jarred by the racial statistics and felt obligated to do something. The teachers should feel obligated not to fail people in elementary school and middle school. Maybe if the teachers union got off their ass and did something and actually helped and, and fund teachers more appropriately, especially in poorer areas, maybe everybody would have the opportunity to enroll in a honors class if they wanted to. But no, rather than trying to elevate students, California wants to demote the successful folks or the folks who want to try harder or have a greater opportunity. That's pathetic. That is a disaster. California is getting worse by the day. I feel embarrassed to say I live in California. <sighs> I feel like I, I, I am making these videos so often now where I'm like, what the hell is happening in California? And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So frustrating. And then sometimes I get comments from people that are like, well, why did, why did you try to do something about it, Kevin? I did. It literally ran for governor when I was 29 years old. It came in second place. <sighs> Goodness gracious. One party rule equals echo chamber. You are very correct. That's the problem. You literally have a government that would rather send stimulus checks to people making $500,000 than actually keep honors classes. That's California for you. That's so stupid. Ah, crazy, 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 crazy. Anyway, that's my California rant for you. I, I just, I was shocked when I saw that yesterday. I'm like, this is so bad. This is so ridiculous. All right, anyway, all right, let's keep going here. So um, the weather is not worth it. Well, I mean, you could solve it. You could just not go to public schools. It's just more expensive, right? So you pay the taxes. And you can't go to a public school because the school system is, is horrible. Uh, you know, stuff like this happens. Uh, you know, it, it's basically just more expensive. Terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, yeah, homelessness is number one. Yeah, but you also have to solve the causes of homelessness. And unfortunately, California's education system is so broken, you're actually just... Even if you solved all of the homelessness that you had today, you still have a steady pipeline of people becoming homeless because California has failed people so badly. Terrible. Mm. Can we see a collection of all your mugs? Yeah, that is, that's probably one of my favorite things to do is collect different mugs. RuneScape, Rust, World of Warcraft, they're great. Nobody knows mugs better than I do. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, I actually have a, uh, a picture I want to show you. I uh, trapped myself yesterday in the uh, cockpit of the plane and I thought I'd show you a picture. Hold on, I will find it. I made a face. Stand by. Uh, here it is. There's Kevin, stuck in the plane. Make sure to remove before flight. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, anyway. All right, so next up, uh, we could go through 16 economic themes. Ooh, that would be good. Uh, that, that's a good one. We'll do that in just a sec. Let's see what else you have. Uh, 
Kevin, have you been using ChatGPT? No, I haven't in about a week and a half as the last time I've logged in. Uh, yeah, no, I, I really, I, I can't wait for that to just be part of like Google or something, mostly because I hate logging into ChatGPT. I know that sounds like a, a basic problem, but I've made my account with, with Microsoft and then you have to go through the two-factor and it logs you out all the time. I, 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 it's just a pain in the butt. So I rarely log in because it's such a headache. I know that sounds nominal, but it's, it, it, I just, I haven't been compelled to play around in it because I really don't care. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, and then I can't be bothered. But uh, yeah, there's some, I see some funny coverage on uh, online about it. Have I actually flown my plane? Oh, hell no. I'm never gonna fly that sucker. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I am not a flyer. I, I'll sit in the back. <laughs> I will, I'm not gonna get a pilot's license. Nope. Thought about it. Took a discovery flight. Read the FAA pilot handbook. And they basically had a section around page 100 that's like, who should not be a pilot? And there was basically a picture of me. So, uh, yeah, the, the, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, let's go ahead, see what else we got. So next up, let's look at, uh, we've got uh, 16 themes driving the markets. This will be interesting. 16 themes. <laughs> Pilots ever talk about seeing UFOs? No, but we were joking about that yesterday. We were actually flying, so uh, private air travel travels higher than, uh, than commercial, and we saw a Spirit Airlines flight that was probably going about 300 miles an hour, and uh, we're coming up from behind it, and we were maybe about 6,000 feet above it. It was a clear day, so we could see them. And we were going about 535 miles an hour, so it was pretty neat. We were flying right past the Spirit Airlines flight, about 6,000-ish feet above them. And it was interesting just seeing, I felt like we were in a race. I, I don't know why that's interesting, but I, I think it is. Anyway, it, it at max speed, the thing's like 565 miles an hour I saw yesterday. I'm like, nice. Now, I'd love to have a plane in the future, maybe, that could go like Mach 0.95. You don't want to break the sound barrier. It's just not worth it uh, until you start going like multi-Mach. But anyway, um, yeah, what's, what's Mach? Mach 0.95 miles per hour. Let's see what that is. It's like 700, right? 728. That's awesome. Be another like 150 miles an hour. Oof. Juicy, you get places faster, but those those planes are like ridiculously expensive. Uh, most most airlines travel around 500 miles an hour, uh, maybe 550. Uh, I see 450 a lot. This thing flies about 565, so it's pretty pretty par. It's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, all right. Now we're gonna talk 16 themes. <clears throat> okay. There's 16 massive different trends happening when it comes to investing, and you wanna pay attention to all of these. Now, beautiful thing here is Deutsche Bank put together a phenomenal piece on this, and they really give you a guide to how you should be thinking about the market in their opinion. When's the Fed going to cut rates? What about inflation? What about investing in a green tech? What about the debt cycle? China, private equity, natural resources, volatility, active investment. What's, what's the difference between active investment and passive investment in terms of 2023? What are they seeing? What kind of 
uh, subsidy wars are we looking at and how to potentially benefit from them. Deutsche Bank put together a phenomenal piece on this. Uh, and I thought, hey, let's dive into it together. So let's do just that. This is the piece from the Deutsche Bank Research, DBR. And uh, here we go. 16 themes driving the markets. First up, we have adjusting to higher inflation. So I've made some notes. So we'll just go through some of the highlights here. Deutsche Bank believes that we should be pricing in about 200 basis points of rate cuts by mid-2024. So that would be reducing rates from, say, 5.5% back to about 3.5% by mid-2024 as a recession ends up hitting in mid-23. So Deutsche Bank has a belief that, that the recession is probably going to hit us somewhere Q2, Q3 in 2023. Estimates for the recession do continue to get delayed, though. A lot of folks are calling for, no, it'll be early 2024. No, it'll be mid-2024. Deutsche Bank believes middle of 2023. Either way, almost all researchers suggest it should be a relatively mild recession, and it seems to be the most predicted recession that's ever happened. I think it'll be terribly ironic if you never actually end up seeing the recession. It'd actually be terribly funny uh, because it'd be good. We, we, we really don't want to go through a recession. Some people say, well, if you don't go through a recession, you won't get sticky inflation down. We'll see. But if we could get sticky inflation down and not go through a recession, best case scenario because then you don't have as much job loss. So firms with pricing power, they talk about uh, a lot of industries who are able to strengthen uh, their, their sort of labor uh, organization during COVID ended up strengthening so much that you actually have really resilient companies right now that made it through COVID. And I've thought about this before during COVID. One of the things I talked about on the channel was this idea that companies that are actually going through layoffs during COVID are becoming a substantially more lean. They're going to figure out how can we raise revenues and grow and make more money basically with fewer people. Labor tends to be one of your largest drivers of costs at company. So Deutsche Bank is making the argument that that sort of weeding, dare I say, uh, that was happening during COVID actually strengthened firms to be able to get through whatever this recession is that we end up going through. Now, I personally think that that kind of strengthening of not just businesses, but also households could actually make it that you don't end up having a recession. You actually just continue to have GDP growth. There's a reason why the Atlanta Fed Now uh, index for what they believe GDP is so far in Q1 is about 2.4% annualized. And the projections going forward so far are pretty well positive. In fact, some folks from the Fed think that if they were to revise their projection for GDP in 2023 uh, from the summary of economic projections, they would actually move it up from about half a percent to 1%. And that might even still be low because the economy is still growing. It's incredible. They talk about how China is unlikely to export material inflation to the world post their reopening. I've also talked about this quite a bit. And that's because a lot of the spending that's happening in China right now is travel, hotel, entertainment, local casinos, uh, you know, probably Starbucks locally, right? These, these are the things that we're seeing and hearing. Uh, on, on the ground floor over in China, less demand necessarily on uh, commodities. Some folks still think you're going to get uh, that sort of commodities inflation. Uh, however, so far, it seems like you're not getting that new real estate building boom. Yeah, maybe home sales in China will, will rise, but you've got plenty of vacant homes that need to be sold uh, in, in China. So you could actually see home sales go up without home building rise in China, creating less commodities inflation. We'll see. But you can see here headline inflation, core inflation, ISM, 
guy. It's all reducing uh, in price pressures. <clears throat> ISM is sort of the a survey, Institute for Supply Side Management Survey of Pricing forward pricing. And, and you can see all of these measures are rotating down. However, if you look at services X energy, you, you have a tiny rotation down, but it's still remaining pretty resilient and sticky. You actually see that if you remove housing as well, it's still up there. A lot of that is being driven by personal services, whether it's haircuts, education services, transportation services, uh, accounting services, whatever, uh, medical care services, healthcare, insurance services, a lot of these uh, still rising quite a bit. Now, uh, a lot of folks think, myself included, that that's still part of the burning embers of, uh, of, of companies basically having to deal with higher costs and prices. This is an interesting one. Uh, they talk about here how the real economy might uh, not really pull the handbrake, so to speak, in the second half of 2023. And what you're going to find is the cost of debt is likely to rise substantially for businesses who end up having to refinance their debt at higher interest rates. And so what I wrote next to that is, if you're looking for companies to invest in right now, you might potentially look at companies that have substantially lower uh, debt the lower debt you have at companies that you invest in, in my opinion, the less risk you have to those interest rate shocks. Uh, and so ideally, and this is something that I've been looking at in pricing power related stocks, you ideally want to look for, again, not personalized financial advice. We always wanna make that clear here. I don't know your portfolio, so I can't give you personalized advice. But broadly, I, I think looking for pricing power stocks, those are companies that have uh, the best margins within their field, the ability to adjust pricing while still maintaining margins, the definition of pricing power, but also high free cash flow and low debt. Both of those very, very important. One of the reasons I'm actually staying away personally from the airlines is because even though airlines to some degree could be argued to have pricing power right now, you have a lot of debt at the airlines that I don't want to be exposed to because I think that debt is actually going to get much more expensive before uh, it uh, before before rates rotate down. Here's some talk about China's recovery. They talk a little bit about what we've already touched on, lower inflation, uh, and uh, it's potentially underappreciated by investors. Uh, they are bullish on the idea of construction economies, uh, commodities, given the amount of infrastructure spending. That, uh, that, that China is pumping out. Generally, China provides stimulus not in the form of stimulus checks, but in the form of more construction spending or corporate welfare, basically, like corporate incentives. There have been conflicting views on this. So even though Deutsche Bank believes that you're going to see this sort of continuation of stimulus infrastructure spending, a lot of uh, analysts on Wall Street actually think that China already has enough infrastructure. I know that sounds ironic because it's obviously a developing country, but you've got literal ghost cities that have been built that have not actually been occupied yet. So an insane amount of building under the thesis that if you build it, they will come. And so far, you just don't have the come. Uh, so we'll see. Private capital. Now, I think this is interesting. They make an argument that uh, right now you've got money managers that are sitting on potentially $1.3 trillion of dry powder cash to potentially invest in startups when the time comes again to invest in venture capital. However, there are a lot of existing businesses 
that have essentially low credit scores uh, and in and, and the leveraged loan market. These are going to be more uncertain businesses, lower cash flow businesses, probably profit list companies that are burning a lot of money. And the debt they have is expected to refinance at substantially higher rates. And Deutsche Bank warns, warns that there, there's potentially going to be a, a risk of a full default cycle bankrupting a lot of these companies that are not even public. Uh, these are private companies that could end up leading to a lot of layoffs. Uh, and a lot of this is due to a substantially high debt with not enough cash flow to cover that debt. In fact, they suggest that the cash flow uh, to debt ratios uh, today are so bad that they're potentially two and a half times as bad as what they were in 2010 uh, for, for the leveraged loan market here. Now, in their words, I'm going to use their words because I've, I've just translated the idea that, that they're for you because it's a little bit complicated here uh, the way they write it. But in their words, they say, less than 20% of the leveraged loan market is now backed by a debt to EBITDA ratio of less than four times. In 2010, it was over 50%. In other words, two and a half times as bad. This is a bad thing. So more risk uh, that you're going to see some form of contagion in the uh, private business uh, area. Uh, so a lot more potentially layoffs from private businesses, not necessarily public, uh, lower debt uh, exposed companies. Some talk here, of course, about uh, subsidy wars. I found this uh, is, is a consistent theme that I'm seeing now, and I do wonder how much of that is, is going to potentially start getting pre-priced in. But uh, there's this idea that uh, you have a subsidy war between not just the United States and Europe, but also China, uh, all of them providing massive subsidies to batteries, solar, wind, and, and, and really the, uh, the electrification boom of uh, renewables potentially pretty large uh, opportunities there. Uh, Deutsche Bank believes that copper and steel might benefit mostly from, from that. Uh, remember, they also have the idea that we're going to see a, a more of an infrastructure boom, which would be supportive also to uh, certainly uh, to, to steel for framing, uh, copper for electrical wire. Anyway, uh, new tech. They suggest here that they believe over the next year, you're going to have companies heavily focused on cash flow generation and judicious capex. Uh, now, that's really interesting uh, that, that potentially uh, you're, you're going to see uh, the companies that benefit the most being ones that are able to show, look, we can invest heavily while still maintaining cash flow. And they believe that subscription companies might actually be that uh, a type of business that could benefit the most. Now, uh, initially, a lot of us thought that software service businesses would actually do very poorly in this market because uh, of, of uh, layoffs, especially in the tech field. But I actually went through the uh, Cloudflare earnings call and I was blown away by this. Uh, watch this. In 2022, we had over 400,000 people apply for 1,300 positions. And on top of that insane demand for people wanting to work at these SaaS companies and these SaaS companies still growing like crazy. What they actually talk about is the weakest part of their sales are smaller businesses, that larger businesses continue to seem to be hiring and it's the smaller businesses uh, that, uh, that are the ones that are less materially important to their bottom line over at Cloudflare and it's the smaller businesses 
that uh, that are spending less money uh, ramping up. And so Cloudflare, for example, continues to expect to be able to grow their net retention rate by about 130%. Uh, this is pretty incredible. So you've got a company here expecting to grow basically not have negative churn, right? Still growing 130% from a retention basis, but then of course still growing with new seats as well on top of that, uh, and still hiring like crazy, but also an insane amount of availability of workers. Now, in my opinion, that tells you two things. It tells you, damn, software companies get to pick. I mean, you're hiring a quarter of a percent of the applicants. How do you even go through 400,000 applications? On top of that, it shows you a wild, wild availability of labor. This is remarkable. The availability of, of, of labor is, is so high uh, that, uh, that I don't think labor has pricing power anymore going into 2023. I think there is lingering pricing power really in sort of retail and hospitality. But white collar, I, I don't re I can't see much pricing power left. This is, this is remarkable. Uh, and it's a sign that suggests we should not worry about a wage price spiral. There seems to be a substantially uh, available labor force that uh, that should help keep wage costs stable. You know, we want people to make more money, but we, we also don't want a wage price spiral. That ends up being bad for everyone. Uh, they, they do say the fangs, with a double A there, still have uh, huge moats, balance sheets to be able to withstand a recession. However, expect a lot of utility, especially around uh, antitrust so I wrote Goog next to that, and then you've also got like Microsoft and Blizzard. Return of volatility, I think this is pretty obvious. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't make many notes over here, but we're in a substantially volatile uh, sector or, or moment in the economy right now. Creates a lot of uncertainty. You have uh, this idea about a renewal of active investment. Now, I think this is actually very important. They talk about you can't rely on uh, comparing your investments to beta right now, making beta comparisons, which would be basically be saying that, okay, well, your company has a two beta. It should outperform the S&P 500 by a factor of two or underperform by a factor of two, right? Uh, and so they make this argument that you can't look at the indices right now. Now, that's actually something that I've been saying for about probably three months now that you probably want to get away from the indices. Obviously, again, not personalized financial advice, but the idea is that you potentially want to get away from the indices because the indices are going to be weighed down by industrials and consumer staples that end up suffering, uh, uh, basically taking it in the margin. In other words, higher costs without being able to raise prices. Think Procter & Gamble, think 3M, I think Johnson & Johnson, they expect they can't really raise prices anymore uh, going in through 2023 and that they're going to have to absorb higher costs via margins. Tyson Foods is experiencing this. Pepsi uh, seems to be at the end of their ropes for being able to raise prices, so they're going to absorb, uh, take it more on the margin, right? So I think that's actually going to hurt indices substantially, especially like an S&P 500, whereas potentially higher cash flow growth companies uh, could end up doing very, very well in 2023, especially those with low debt and high cash flow uh, and, and, and high operating leverage. So we'll see. Somebody here writes, Kevin doesn't know that the U.S. is already dead. It's going to get worse. Oh, well, that sounds terribly bearish. I would hate to be a bear right now. That's all right. A lot of, a lot of the bears of uh, January are, are uh, very upset right now because they were caught very offsides. Now, they could end up being right that we end up going through a more challenging 2023 of sticky inflation. But uh, I, the last thing I would do is bet against America. I would not, not bet against America at all. I, I would never say. 
America's dead. I think America's just beginning. I think California's dying. But California will, will turn. I'm confident that California will turn at some point in the future. I think uh, Californians will get so fed up with how horrible uh, uh, the government has become in California that um, there'll be a revolution at some point. And I, I'm not talking like armed revolution, like overthrow the government. I'm talking like you'll end up getting a full Republican uh, chamber uh, in the legislature and in, uh, in, in the governor's office. And uh, the Californians will be so fed up with, with what's happening with uh, some of the policies here that essentially force homelessness, force less education in schools and schools that are already ranked 40th in the state, uh, high taxes that are going to provide stimmy checks rather than actually solving a mental health crisis. And uh, it, it's, look, I, I don't want to go through another California tangent. Anyway, continuing on. But in terms of America, I would not bet against America. I thought this was... Uh, quite unique because there's been this idea that you could invest in oil companies because oil companies uh, end up uh, uh, trying to invest in clean energy and uh, renewables. However, uh, Deutsche Bank, they talk about this idea that oil companies uh, and sort of your, your legacy energy companies are finding, uh, I'm not sure exactly where that page was, but it's somewhere around here. They're finding it very difficult to find places to invest that actually make the money now in, in the renewable space. And they like making money now. So uh, it's becoming very difficult for oil companies to adapt. So right now, what are they doing? It's focusing on oil because you know, oil is 80 bucks a barrel uh, for international blend. I think uh, your WTI Western blend is what, 78 bucks or something right now, 76? Oh, it's falling a little bit. I mean, that's good from a disinflationary point of view. But uh, yeah, I think the oil companies realize Oil prices are not going to stay high, this high this long. Personally, I think the oil companies are actually, well, you were to see this, they're actually taking rigs offline at the moment. Over the last two months, you've seen rig counts flatten and actually fall a little bit because oil prices are starting to fall again. And I think they're sort of sponsoring this idea that, oh, China's gonna push oil inflation again because they really wanna get one last pump out of oil at 100 bucks a gallon. 100 bucks a gallon, my God. 100 bucks a barrel. Uh, I don't think it's gonna happen, <laughs> unfortunately for them. Uh, I, I don't see it happening, but uh, hey, who knows? But I think the oil companies realize the writing is on the wall that oil is, is going to continue trending down. Especially since, remember, even as the, the economy continues to reopen, if you will, we, we've already hit peak oil and gas demand in 2019. We, we are using less. Even though our GDP is growing, we are using less oil and gas today than we did in 2019. Anyway. So uh, let's look at, uh, okay, yeah, I like, this was, this was quite interesting too. And I, I've been saying this a lot, I, I'm telling you, the 16-piece thematic uh, PDF here was so phenomenal by, by Deutsche Bank because it really gave us this basis for talking about these 16 themes. But this is one that I'm actually very excited about. They say here that voter power should transition from sort of the silent generation and the boomer generation to millennials and Gen Z by 2030, and I really believe that millennials and Gen Z are going to wake up and stop voting for the garbage that we have in, for example, California or in San Francisco. That's terrible. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see, but uh, I'm, I'm uh, very excited personally about that sort of transition. Anyway, uh, continued upward pressure on inflation, particularly for low wage workers. I think we've already covered inflation pretty heavily here with wages. I think the high wage workers, you're actually not seeing that sort of pricing power. 
there is still some stickiness in lower wage factory work uh, wages. Uh, Chipotle, Starbucks, obviously seeing it easier already to hire folks. Even in healthcare, you're seeing less signing bonuses, which interestingly, I don't know that you actually see signing bonuses. Maybe somebody could let me know in the um, comments, uh, in uh, you know, at, at the bottom of the video, is our signing bonuses considered part of wage inflation? Uh, this would be sort of your employment cost index. Uh, signing bonuses. If they're not, then in a weird way, you could actually see uh, wages still rise, even though technically they're not, because you're not getting the wage signing bonuses anymore. And so you, the, the data we're getting, I think, is very uh, incapable of actually adjusting for a lot of what was very normal during the pandemic. And it's leading us to believe that there's so much more inflation than, in my opinion, there really is. Yes, I, I said that correctly. I think there's substantially less inflation than what we're actually seeing uh, in, in some of the reports. Uh, and part of that is also because of just deflationary trends that you have in things that younger people are buying, but inflationary trends in things that older people are buying. Look at this. These are the, the CPI components since 2005. And you can see what's getting more expensive are hospital services and medical care services weighing up the all items inflation and shelter. Whereas things that are getting substantially less expensive are things what younger people are buying. Computers and TVs, for example, right? Now, eventually, obviously, you know, you would expect that younger people age and then unfortunately you have to deal with medical care services. But, uh, but hopefully we start getting some disinflation over here in, in the medical space as well. So where the cost of care can actually go down. We'll see. Uh, another, another fascinating uh, thing to consider over here. So we've talked about incumbent oil companies already. We've talked about China pushing renewables hard. Uh, low wage earnings continuing to add pressure. Outperformers in stocks will likely be companies with lower sensitivity to wage rises and higher revenue per employee. Now that's actually neat because yesterday we did a, uh, a course member live stream where we sort of broke down uh, how much revenue companies have per employee at, at various different companies. And we saw essentially which companies seem to have the highest leverage per employee. And this is something that you could easily do as well. But Deutsche Bank here making the argument that outperformers are likely to be stocks with low sensitivity to wage, wage rises and higher revenue to per employee. This contrasts with the years of gains in high staff tech, consumer staples, and healthcare. In other words, you have to be careful betting on the everything rally that we had previously, and you have to be more choosy. And this is why personally I'm making so many bets on pricing power stocks that have more operating leverage, not less. So in other words, they're able to make more money with less workers potentially. That's growing your OPEX or uh, growing your gross profit margins, lower costs of goods sold per revenue. Very important. They talk a little bit here about space will be key going forward. I think it's a little early to really invest in, in, in space because we, we just don't have proven cash flow models yet. Obviously, if, if there were ways to reasonably value SpaceX on the public market right now, it'd, be, uh, it'd potentially be an interesting early play. SpaceX, we don't believe is profitable yet, probably won't be profitable for a few more years. But I would not invest in private equity right now because they have not gone through I believe, mostly the valuation correction that we've seen in the public markets, which means if right now you're investing in like SpaceX stock, for example, in my opinion, really what you're doing is you're investing in 
a market that still hasn't corrected for the recession or higher rates. And so you're potentially investing at very high valuations. This is to contrast, by the way, just for those of you wondering with house hack, house hack doesn't have a multiple on a valuation. It's literally selling equity at cash, one-to-one valuation, which is kind of unheard of. Uh, but uh, that's that's because you know I'm, I'm driving uh, a, a company that I think will be very, very successful, knock on wood, no guarantees. Uh, learn more about it at househack.com. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really wanting to create this company to prove to those who invest in Kevin that in the future you want to invest in Kevin again, right? So building that, uh, that street cred, so to speak, of, hey, let me show you what I can do with a company. And uh, we'll, we'll start at we'll start at a basically a one to one valuation. Nobody does that. It's because I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, sit here and, and uh, ridiculously dilute people uh, like you do get at that uh, a, a lot of private companies, unfortunately, which I think is terrible. Um, so anyway, it's just the way the system is built, though, and I don't think it's fair. But whatever. So I'm going to do it a little differently. So those are uh, those are my thoughts on uh, Deutsche Bank's uh, 16 themes. I think they're pretty incredible. Hopefully you found uh, some insight into those as well. All right, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the commentary you've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, credibility and reputation compound. I agree with you, Kevin. What's the average U.S. savings? I don't know the cross average, but you 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 have substantially higher. Uh, consumer savings and balances still, and, and the drawdown of that is a lot slower. You know, the, the average savings right now of somebody who's sitting at, uh, or who used to sit at that two and a half to five thousand dollar bank balance is now sitting somewhere at uh, twelve point eight thousand dollars. I mean, the amount of excess excess savings still available is is very very high, uh, very high, uh, and, and I don't think markets are are appropriately realizing that, uh, and and that'll potentially really delay. Uh, the recession, because people could just continue to spend through it, as American Express says. Uh, okay. Let's see. All the younger people I know are more heavily medicated by the 20s than my grandparents are at 75. Yeah, you need to find some new friends to hang out with. Fat data is rigged, somebody writes. <laughs> oh, dear. Zimbabwe, U.S. dollar soon? Yeah, I, I doubt that. Thoughts on the debt ceiling? Not terribly worried about it. Uh, really not worried about that at all. Uh, I think that'll get passed. Uh, they'll raise the debt ceiling. And, and, you know, there'll be a lot of clickbait and, and drama over it. No, no doubt. No doubt there'll be a lot of drama over it. No doubt at all. Lots of drama. <laughs> Nobody knows drama more than the government and the debt ceiling. Nobody knows. Nobody knows drama. <laughs> Someone here writes, I just keep purchasing ETFs and averaging down. I mean, hopefully the ETFs you've been averaging into uh, over the last uh, uh, you know, month you've been averaging up on, on your recent shares. But I understand if, if you're saying maybe you had a cost basis from 21 uh, or, or 2022, where you're averaging down. That makes sense. It actually, I mean, lowers your cost basis. It's fine, you know. Yeah, I, I think ETFs are so wonderful as well in terms of their tax benefits. Uh, I think they're great. Too early. Let's see, Tesla. Isn't it too early for me to invest? 
given price cuts on a, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I can't give you personalized financial advice in terms of what you should invest in or should not invest into. Uh, but I think what you're asking me is, should you worry about Tesla's price cuts? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, uh, you know, you're going to see a margin decline, right? You're going to see margin compress, gross margin to about 20%, but you're still so much higher on an industry average basis. Not terribly worried about that at all. Uh, I mean, if you're investing in Tesla because you're worried about what's going to happen over the next six months to a year, uh, then, then you're probably not making an investment. You're making a speculative bet, right? I, I, so I'm, I'm personally not terribly worried about that. Lawsuit in Florida. I have no lawsuit in Florida. I had some fun with Grant Cardone, but I won that. <laughs> well, I talked about BYD and Charlie Munger yesterday. You could watch my Tesla video from yesterday and you can get the answer to that. Yeah, I'm actually paying a lot of attention to Florida real estate because uh, you are starting to see an inflection up in, in some areas in Florida prices for uh, Tampa, uh, uh, South Florida, Miami as well. So uh, it's, it's very different, actually, from what you're seeing on the, uh, the West Coast. So I actually might have to talk to my, uh, the team about this, but I might want to make it to Florida. Maybe I can get to Florida... Friday. No, that's not going to work. I need to get to Florida within the next few weeks because I, I want to see on the ground uh, how what the sentiment is relative to what we're actually seeing in the data because the data is much more bullish on, on Florida uh, than anything in the West Coast right now, which is fine because that just means you have more opportunity, more patience for the West Coast. But yes, you're correct to observe that... that uh, Florida is performing substantially better than the West Coast. I know there are going to be a lot of people that are like, yep, that's what the liberals get. Come to Florida, get your Ronda Sanctimonious. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> um, but yes, Naples, Fort Myers. Yeah, you guys got hit hard in the last hurricane. I'd be curious to, to also know how, how the rebuilds. Florida's so strong, though. The Floridians are, are, are so resilient. You guys just rebuild better. You build it back better. You know Sarasota, says Brandon. Yeah. All right, so let's go. Uh, I have a DeSantis holster. That exists? That's interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, thank you for the $20 donation. I have not uh, been doing really any interviews on other channels recently uh, in the last few months, but I kind of go through phases of doing those. So maybe I'll probably do those when we launch our reggae. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start uh, doing uh, sort of podcasts and that again. So stay tuned probably like April, May. Right now I've got plenty of other stuff going on that I've got to handle myself. Anywho. All right, uh, the next topic that we've got to talk about uh, is Tesla. Uh, and then maybe we could touch on the Fed a little bit. Yeah, all right, let's talk a little bit about Tesla and then a little bit about the Fed. And we're gonna go to the Lee Tesla's live stream after that, that'll be fun. Yeah, six month T-bills, fantastic. Just remember, 
you're you're getting such a high yield on T-bills right now because you have a massive opportunity cost. I mean, think about it. If you bought T-bills at the beginning of the year, you missed out on a 10 to 50% equity rally, right? So you're like, yay, 4%, 5%, whatever. And uh, the market's like, yay, 50%, you know? So you don't want to get caught too off sides out of equity. Now, I understand there's, there's a lot of uncertainty and fear, but you know, we're, we're not, we're not looking at a 1970s Paul Volcker era re recession right now. Is it possible that it happens? Yes. But the leading indicators say no. Those could change. You know, markets change. And, and when the facts change, you should change your mind. But right now, the trend is, hmm, yeah, there are going to be some parts of embers that keep inflation sticky, but the trend is down. And that means you want to be in, not out of equities. Hashtag not personalized financial advice. <laughs> uh, that's my take. Carp keeps burning cash. I don't know about that. The Palantir earnings call looked pretty good. I actually did a video on Palantir. Just type into YouTube, meet Kevin Palantir. And uh, and, and you can see me go through the Palantir earnings. It's, so, it's such a niche video, it actually didn't get many views. Uh, which is fine, I don't really care. You know, sometimes I just throw them up there because I know it's valuable to some people. But uh, at least when I went through the financials for Palantir, they, they actually weren't that bad. What do you have at Palantir? You have, let's see here. Actually, I have it right here. Let's see really quick. You should watch the video anyway, but. So they had a loss of about 17 mil. Their revenue grew about 17.5%, cost to rev up 20%. Net loss about 20 mil. I'm pretty sure their cash flow is way higher. Let me see here. Balance sheet. Balance sheet, they've got over $2.6 billion sitting around. Absolutely incredible. So they've got ton of, a ton of money. Uh, Stock-based comp for the year ended was like 564 mil. And their free cash flow was somewhere around $180 million for the year end 2022. So you actually can't say uh, uh, Palantir is, is, is burning cash. Uh, because they're, they're, they're actually free cash flow positive. Pretty, pretty uh, free cash flow positive. So, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, what I see. So, so when people say, oh, Alex Karp is, uh, is burning, uh, burning capital, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. They're actually making money, <laughs> doing pretty well. They are diluting their shareholders. They are doing that with a lot of stock-based comp. But that's normal. Every company gives stock-based comp. That's normal. It's just then you have to evaluate what valuation do you want to invest in companies at, uh, you know, given uh, normal compensation structure, stock-based comp, stock options. Uh, but that's not a cash burn, right? They're, they're actually quite cash flow positive. Yeah. Anyway, I wasn't expecting to jump into like a Palantir discussion there, but I did. All right, now let's talk Tesla. All right, stand by for Tesla. We got to talk Tesla because I just interviewed, uh, uh, well, an amazingly brilliant mind over at ARK Invest, Brett Witten, phenomenal researcher. And the full interview uh, will be on my channel Saturday, February 18th. But we're going to talk about Tesla and this potential next generation vehicle. Brett is convinced that Tesla is going to announce 
the next generation vehicle. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about my thoughts about what he said, but I also want to first talk about what Wall Street says about this, specifically Goldman Sachs. So here is Goldman Sachs' take on Tesla, and then we'll get into uh, ARK Invest's take, and then we'll get into some of my commentary. Take a look at this. Goldman Sachs uh, says that for Investor Day, you should expect Tesla to talk about the Generation 3 platform, a lower cost structure, potentially a Generation 3 vehicle platform, uh, where costs could be reduced by about 50%. March 1st is uh, going to be the Investor Day. And uh, they believe that everything about Investor Day will be about how is Tesla going to get their costs for vehicles down 50%, which actually increases their pricing power because if they, let's say, reduce prices 25%, but reduce costs 50%, you actually have massive PP, massively huge pricing power. It's really incredible. In fact, uh, rumor has it that Tesla might be close to announcing officially their uh, Giga Mexico, uh, either uh, this weekend or uh, or as, as early um, as late as next week, we'll see if that rumor ends up being true. But I mean, just think about the cost of goods sold for manufacturing in Texas, or sorry, uh, in uh, Mexico relative to Texas. Cost of goods sold for labor. Your average wage in Mexico is somewhere around three bucks, uh, three twenty-five, three fifty, whereas out in in Texas, you're probably fifteen to twenty-five bucks. So you're already looking at reducing your cost of labor by an order of magnitude of 4x just by nearshoring uh, in, in Mexico. Really incredible uh, labor cost reductions. And, and what you'll have, you know, some people will hear about that as, oh, you know, exploitation, you know, here comes the capitalist exploit. But what you're actually doing is you're just moving to an area where you have a lot of auto manufacturers already. I guess Mercedes and GM are already exploiting Mexicans. Uh, at, at, at lower pay. But what the reality is, the more you have companies move to Mexico, like uh, Tesla opening a gigafactory in Mexico, what you're actually doing is you're creating more demand for housing and labor, and you actually increase average labor costs. Uh, and so maybe you'll see that average labor cost uh, actually rise, and you're actually increasing the standard of living in those regions of uh, Northeast Mexico. So, so we'll see what ends up happening. But I'm actually relatively bullish on, on the, uh, the Giga Mexico. But uh, Goldman Sachs here uh, w believes that Tesla is going to talk about achieving this cost reduction and then being able to uh, ship a lower cost consumer-based vehicle based off of that third generation platform. Now, Goldman Sachs believes that people, uh, uh, investors, think that Tesla would start shipping a lower cost consumer vehicle starting in 2025. Now, Goldman Sachs says they do not model for a lower cost vehicle. They're not projecting in their price forecast that Tesla will have a lower cost vehicle out by 2025. And they do not expect that Tesla is going to announce a specific product on investor day. Uh, however, there are a lot of investor rumors about maybe a model two, a model Q, a model Q is sort of like another slap in the face to the short sellers because Tesla Q is considered, a, 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 you know, your, your uh, Tesla short position. Uh, but anyway, what's fascinating about this is most financial models right now, most people who, who essentially project prices for Tesla, they they look at, okay, you know, how much money can Tesla make just ramping the three, maybe get the Cybertruck in there, throw a little bit of semi-truck in, a little bit of mega pack expansion, that's it. Those are most models. Most models aren't touching robo-taxi. Most model, uh, um, uh, models are not touching a lower cost generation vehicle. 
However, if it is possible that a generation three vehicle could uh, be built at a 50% lower cost, again, remember, you could take something like a Model 3, uh, which, you know, selling in that 40K range right now, and you could lower the cost of these substantially. Let's see what we could get a Model 3 for right now. So let's go to order now on the Tesla page. And let's see what the current price is for a Model 3. Keep in mind that Tesla has been uh, reducing the cost of the 3, but actually after reducing cost, ended up raising the cost of the Model Y because they ended up selling out for Q1, which is through basically, you have to wait until April now to get a Model um, uh, Model Y. But anyway, you've got a Model 3 over here at about 43,000 bucks. If you could lower the cost uh, of a Model 3 by 50%, you could potentially lower the cost of this by as much as 40%. You don't even necessarily have to announce a new car, you could just sell the Model 3 cheaper, right? So, I mean, think about that. If, if it's 43,000 bucks, let me make sure we don't have incentives on. Yeah, get rid of the potential savings over here. You could maybe lower the cost of this sucker by 40%. That would bring you down to $25,800. There's your $25,000 car. You don't actually need a new car. You could just take the Model 3 and sell it for 40% less. If you get your costs down 50%, you're actually gaining operating leverage. You're gaining gross margin while lowering prices potentially as much as 40%. And that gets you basically right to $25,000, 25.9, call it. So you don't really need a new vehicle to be announced to get to a $25,000 car if Goldman Sachs is right and Tesla can pull off a, uh, a, a margin uh, uh, reduction or cost reduction of 50%. It's pretty incredible. Maybe they can do that via Gigafactory in Mexico, for example, right? And deliver the United States version uh, via the Inflation Reduction Act, which wants uh, vehicles produced in North America, which includes Mexico. And, uh, and, and you could potentially create that $25,000 vehicle without even announcing a new car. Now, ARC, uh, and uh, well, I should speak specifically of Brett Whitten, which you'll see in the interview. Again, it's being posted uh, Saturday, February 18th. You can see the full interview that I have with uh, um, ARC Invest, Brett Whitten. Brett believes that Tesla is going to announce a new vehicle on Investor Day. He believes, and, and he said it extremely convincingly. And he believes it's going to be a vehicle uh, that will be the essentially epitome of the robo-taxi vehicle. It will be Tesla's robo-taxi vehicle that in the future you could actually have an optional steering wheel for. That initially it might ship with a steering wheel, but in the future it won't have a steering wheel. And it will be the foundation for uh, the, uh, the, the robo-taxi network. That's pretty incredible. Now, in order to create that, uh, you would expect that full self-driving and the roadmap for full self-driving and some of the cutting-edge full self-driving needs to be substantially better than it is now. Right now, you still need a driver, right? That last 10% on AI is so hard. The first 90% is exponentially easier than that last 10% to actually get to real full self-driving. I know we'll see. If purposefully, actually, just to see how close we are on the wide release, let my car get into funky situations and then let it do stupid things in a safe way, obviously. Uh, like I'll go to yields and it'll treat it like a stop sign and there's traffic around and it's in this unknown area where it just hasn't trained for yet. And I'm just like, all right, go ahead. The people behind me are just going to have to wait 30 seconds while the car figures it out. Now, I feel bad for those people. I'm sorry. I, I monopolized their time, their 30 seconds for the sake of, uh, you know, beta testing. 
I, I feel bad about that because if everybody did that, there'd be a lot more traffic on the road. In fairness, there was not a lot of traffic on the road. There just happened to be cars behind me at that point. And I did get a honk or two. But anyway, there are definitely still, there's still some work to be done. Uh, and, and who knows? Maybe the cutting edge tech already has that. So I would expect we'll see a lot of information about the future of full self-driving uh, on Investor Day, as well as potentially that robo-taxi platform. But while ARC believes that will be the announcement of a completely new vehicle, I actually lean a little bit more towards <clears throat> Goldman Sachs' opinion that you could just cut costs by 50% for the Model 3. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, Goldman doesn't even talk about uh, this particularly, but if you then reduce prices of the Model 3 by 40%, you have a $25,000 Model 3. It's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, and you still have uh, a growth in, in gross margin, which is wild. That sounds like a big PP to me. A lot of pricing power. But uh, yeah, ARK Invest is convinced, at least Brett is, that there will be a new vehicle announced. So uh, they, 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 have, uh, and they said that very, very confidently. So good for them. And if they're right, then I'm going to start scratching my head going, what did you know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, they're convinced it'll be a robo-taxi style vehicle. What I also thought was interesting in my conversation with him is he thought that in their models, they've started realizing that Robotaxis are going to become so cheap that people are going to use so many more robotaxis that you might actually substantially increase congestion on roads that you might actually have to create a capsuled base robotaxi network. We're kind of like Uber pool. You don't want to sit next to other people, but you end up having a car that has like four different capsules where people can get into different capsules and like optionally open partitions uh, if they're traveling with family or whatever. So that way you... Uh, uh, you don't have to interact with strangers, but you can actually have a robo-taxi network that drops people off along the same path without, you know, driving past those potential drop-off points by having a sort of capsuled-style robo-taxi. That sounds a lot like a bus, but one that has sort of private compartments. I thought that was quite a fascinating idea, uh, and, and that is one that I personally do not think we are going to hear about uh, on Investor Day, but I may be pleasantly surprised. Again, I think Investor Day will probably be by the rumor sell the news event for the stock. I think that just reducing costs by opening gigafactories in lower cost areas, whether that's you know Indonesia or Mexico, uh, or potentially both to deliver a cheaper Model 3, could be all you really need. So you don't actually need a new car, you just need a, a more efficient platform. So that's my take on Tesla <laughs> and, and what's coming for Tesla. Let me know what you think in the comments down below. Uh, can you read this? Am I shadow banned? No, I literally can see what you're writing. Cool bus story. <laughs> yeah, I would love to invest in ARC, but their expense ratio, I don't think their expense ratio is actually that high. It's pretty, pretty normal for a, uh, uh, <laughs> just like in RuneScape, uh, uh, level uh, level 92 to 99 is longer than 1 to 92. <laughs> That's right. Level 99 divided by 2 is 92. So true. So true. Alright. Version 4 FSD hardware. We'll see. Minivan, Tesla's new product. That'd be... That'd be... That'd be the day. And get all the... You're gonna turn on all the women. <laughs> All right, what's next? Uh, let's do a brief touch on the Fed, and I'm gonna have to push back a little bit the um, elite hustlers, uh, probably about five minutes.
So uh, that way I can make another cup of coffee. All right. Let's now talk. Fed. Stand by for the conversation on the Fed. Somebody basically calls Jerome Powell a weenie baby, and I think it's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and we're gonna break down their uh, their piece on that. Holy smokes, we've got a researcher calling out Jerome Powell as a wannabe and as somebody who uh, will never make it to the grandeur of being known as the Paul Volcker of, uh, of the world uh, economy. And uh, essentially, they, um, they don't seem to uh, trust that Jerome Powell is going to give us the medicine that we need. And so this is a piece by Jeffries, Mr. Christopher Wood over at Jeffries. And I'm going to go through some of the pieces here with you. I'll go through their intro and then I'll go through uh, their critical commentary. And then, of course, I'll add my commentary. So let's get right into it. Washington power plays aside. So this is where they, they actually start by talking about Alail Brainard leaving. And the reason they touch on Alail Brainard leaving is because she was one of the, she was your primary dove at the Fed. And now the sort of cheerleader of the doves is gone at the Fed because she's going to the head of the um, NEC, the National Economic Council. Uh, think about basically Lael Brainard replacing Larry Kudlow. We're going to have a V-shaped recovery. It's going to be huge, a huge V. And that, that was your Larry Kudlow. Uh, and so Lael Brainard is leaving. She's essentially your pure dove. So now you have a Fed that's positioned potentially more hawkishly. But uh, the Jeffrey's piece here makes a counter-argument to the potential hawkishness of, uh, of the Federal Reserve. So let's take a listen here. Power plays aside, the departure of the leading dove at the Fed, as well as the most articulate and economically literate one, huge slam on everyone who's left at the Fed, by the way, uh, does raise a risk that greed and fear will prove to be too complacent on the current view here that it will be surprising. Greed and fear, by the way, is, is the, this piece here. Uh, anyway, the current view here that it will be surprising in the extreme if the Fed does more than one rate hike. Indeed, money markets are now discounting another 65 basis points of rate hikes to 5.23% on the Fed Fund's effective rate by July, up from 4.89% on Feb 1, above the previous peak terminal rate of 5.15% reached in early November. And because Brainard, the peak of the dove is going away, there's this market belief that the Fed is going to be more aggressive. So trying to translate this to English, basically they're saying, Hey, look, we think the Fed's not going to be capable of hiking any more than one time. They're actually kind of like the Fed does, is not going to have the balls to raise any more than one more time. You'll get another 25 BP hike, and then you're going to get a pause in May. That's what they believe. Now, by losing Braidard, they're sort of hedging a little bit. And they're like, all right, maybe we'll get two more 25 BP hikes. But they're big. They're, they're not believers that the Fed's going to be able to pull off getting to above 5%. And the first thing they do is they throw up this chart here showing average hourly earnings growth. And they show how average hourly earnings growth is plummeting. And, and they suggest that this plummeting of average hourly earnings growth will actually force the Fed into a dovish posture faster. And keep in mind, that's kind of what we've been seeing, right? You have companies like uh, Tyson Foods saying they're good with labor availability. You have less signing bonuses going into uh, healthcare, which we're not cl quite clear how that's going to show up in, the, in indices like employment cost indexes, whether they actually show up uh, and, and show signing bonuses going away, which signing bonuses going away is essentially a wage reduction, right? 
Uh, and it's kind of like you get a first free month of rent when you rent a place at an inflated wage. It kind of makes it feel like rents are higher than they really are because you've been subsidized by, you know, if you get a free month of rent at 2,400 bucks, that's like getting $200 off, right? So now your average rent should actually be $2,200, not 24. But then it looks artificially high because, but you've been subsidized. That, that sort of same thing in reverse uh, when your signing bonuses go away. Uh, and, and so that's because you would get paid, you know, say $10,000 more per year. So your salary might be hundred K as opposed to, uh, 110 with the bonus. You take the bonus away, your wage actually goes down, but does that actually get reflected? Because it might look like, oh, hundred K person is still making hundred K who, who knows. Anyway, uh, so, so in other words, uh, myself, I'm seeing in the healthcare industry, uh, as well as statistically, we're seeing less signing bonuses, less pressure, easier availability to find workers, more availability to find workers at Chipotle, Starbucks, entry-level workers, so on and so forth. So you're not actually seeing, uh, you're seeing more labor availability at Cloudflare and software services, more labor availability at Uber and Lyft. You're not seeing the wage price spiral that you were seeing in the 70s. No leading indicator is suggesting that. So if you're making a short bet on the market because you think there's going to be a Paul Volcker regime coming, you might be sorely disappointed. Anyway, continuing with the piece here. Brainard has been articulating clearly the view that monetary policy works with a lag, but unfortunately she's gone. Uh, and uh, now, right here, you're say, just let me read you this because it's hilarious. In this context, on Brainard's departure, Powell may have more room to maneuver to play out his current wannabe Volcker act before he does the inevitable pivot. In other words, this, uh, this opinion Wall Street piece here is that Jerome Powell is trying to be a wannabe Paul Volcker. But in trying to be a Paul Volcker, basically by trying to be a badass, he might end up going down as someone who didn't have the best reputation, like an author Burns, who ended up creating massive Federal Reserve policy mistakes. And so they're making the argument that Jerome Powell Losing Brainard might make him temporarily seem like a more badass Volker, but he's going to end up being a loser and he's going to end up pivoting like the weenie baby they think he is. This is them, okay? They're the ones being so aggressive about Powell. I'll give you my opinion in just a moment. They believe, and it's their base case which remains, that listen to this, quote, the Federal Reserve will be quick to pivot the moment there is any evidence of real weakness in the overall labor market, as opposed to the white collar restructuring currently being witnessed. So as soon as you see basically the normal labor market, as we already are with Uber availability, Lyft availability, Tyson Foods uh, hiring availability, entry level healthcare availability, all of these positions are already seeing way, way less pricing power for labor, which means Wages are, are stabilizing. There is no wage price spiral. And they believe that as soon as the Fed realizes, uh-oh, we're actually starting to see those lags hit and we're actually seeing wage weakness, the Fed's going to pivot instantly. And they're going to realize no wage price spiral. Let's pivot. Let's pause on rates. Let's start reducing rates. We don't actually want to see people get hurt because we have a dual mandate. Stable prices and maximum employment is, is the dual mandate, obviously, right? Uh, and so, of course, then they go into sort of the traditional argument here that don't worry. At the same time as we see wage price pressure go away, we're going to see CPI plummet because of inflation. And it's nearly, you know, 50% contribution to inflation right now. That's going to plummet and disappear. And so at this, what you're really going to see, this is their opinion, 
and I'll give you mine in a moment. Their opinion is that you're going to see lagging data show basically 50% of inflationary pressures plummet because of housing and the other 50% of the inflationary pressures because of wages as soon as there's any sign that they've hit weakness already, which between you and me, we already see the leading indicators of that weakness, you're going to see wage pressures plummet, which will plummet services inflation. In other words, the Fed is going to pivot so fast that you're not going to want to price in too much more pain in 2023. That's their opinion. I don't know if I'm as bullish as they are. So I'll try to place myself on a scale here. So if I sort of had a scale and over here on the left, you had like a bear and over here you had, you know, the two hike, uh, the two hike bull, dare I say, two hike bull and, and pivot. I'm probably a little bit more like right here where I'm like a three to four hike bull and the market will get through it. It'll take a little longer to get to that sort of inflation, but that inflation is coming. It's just going to take longer. So I, I agree with the higher for longer narrative, but I'm definitely leaning more on that bullish side. That's why I'm like, you know, all in, but I'm not in that place where I'm like, you know, it's a YOLO call options, right? Uh, but I'm also not anywhere near this sort of bear, bear side. But I think this is very interesting how they basically call them a weenie baby. And they say temporarily you might see more aggressive posturing, but in the long term, not a chance. That guy's going to flip-flop like the greatest weenie baby you've ever seen. Nobody's ever seen a weenie baby like Jerome Powell when he pivots. <laughs> uh, so, who knows? We'll see, but uh, that's uh, this person's thought. Let me know what you think in the comments down below. Uh, if you have any trouble uh, getting into uh, Discord or the live streams or whatever, you need a bundle coupon or whatever, make sure, just email us. Kevin at me, Kevin.com will take care of you. Thank, thank you for asking. Yeah. Nice jacket. Oh, thank you. All right, I've got to go to the uh, Elite Hustler Live. I'm going to make a quick coffee, so I'll probably be about 60 seconds behind. However long it takes to make the coffee is what I'll be gone, and then we're going to start the Elite Hustlers Live. It's the first one we've done. We'll probably do a good, you know, 30 minutes of just talking business and making more money. So I hope to see you there. If you want to join that, check out the Elite Hustlers course linked down below. And folks, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for being here for the Meet Kevin Report, episode 28. Goodbye.